This is our last Monday together of, of this uh, fall semester. And I want to end in somewhat of a unique way. It's going to take some work on your part. It's going to take an act of deciding if you're going to hang with me through this talk. Because it's not going to be a normal talk. I'm going to read to you a 20-minute selection from what I believe to be one of the best, if not the best, story that C.S. Lewis ever wrote. And I'm going to take a climactic part of that story to sum up something that I've been trying to say all semester. And I hope that what I've been trying to say is reflective of what John was trying to say. We're going to spend about four more sessions at the beginning of uh, second semester concluding, John. And then we're going to look into some of the ethical teachings in Paul's letters in the second half of second semester. But I want to tell this story to you. In fact, I want to read it in the words of C.S. Lewis because I want you to see the gospel demonstrated in a different form and in a different manner and with a, a specific focus that is similar to what John had in mind. I'm going to read this story as is and just make a few very short comments at the end. I hope that the, the story will become a present to you from me, C.S. Lewis through me. It's kind of nice being his uh, ambassador, you know. Make a Christmas present for you to reflect on. If you choose to really be engaged with this story, to see it, try to visualize it as I'm reading it. Don't just listen. Picture it in your mind. If you do, you'll take the story with you and you'll ponder it over the Christmas time. The story is from his novel, Till We Have Faces, what many scholars on C.S. Lewis think is his greatest novel, and I agree. I read it for the first time about eight years ago, and I didn't understand it at all. But I loved the story. I was captivated by the story. I read it again about a year and a half later, and I felt like I was beginning to get a little bit of it. And I've read it three or four times since, and I'm just rereading it this fall very slowly. And the story is rich. I have to tell a little bit of it before I pick up our reading. In the story, it takes place uh, back sometime at the fall of Greece. In another land outside of Greece, one of the barbarian lands, because there are Greek slaves there, one of them named the Fox, who's one of the key figures in the story. Although we won't see much of him in the reading this morning. He's a Greek philosopher who's been taken a captive in the war. And the king of the land that we're going to be visiting, the, the land of Glom, has two daughters. He actually has three, but two of whom we're going to deal with in the story. One is named Oryuol, or Maya. She goes by both names. And Oryuol is not very good looking, to say the least. She's been teased all her life for being ugly, and she feels so ugly that she wears a veil over her face all the time. She's very much like her father, the king, who's tough, ruthless at times, but basically very immature and primitive. And she has all those qualities. Then her little sister, born of another mother who died in that childbirth, is named Psyche, or Istra. And Psyche is quite different than Oriol. Psyche is the most beautiful child you've ever seen. Psyche is, is full of confidence, full of life, but instead of anger, there's compassion. Instead of complexity, there's simplicity and focus and purpose. A great 
plague sweeps the land as the two women are growing in years. And the plague sweeps and a drought comes and the land is weakened and they're afraid of war with their neighbors in their weakened state. And the people are dying daily of the plague and, and young Psyche goes out, princess, from the palace out to the poor people dying of the plague and moves amongst them. And the people can't believe that one of the daughters of the king is there in their midst and she's touching them, physically touching them with the plague. And some began to say they were healed at her touch. And they started to flock toward the, the palace. And they, they screamed for her to come out and heal them. And the king sent her out, not knowing if she would be mobbed and killed. But she walked out and they fell down before her. And she touched everyone from morning to night. Some, they say, were healed. But the mood of a crowd changes easily and quickly. And the mood of the crowd changed because the plague still was there. And the drought got worse. And then the one whom they'd almost worshipped, the one whom they'd looked to for healing, they began to say, no, she didn't heal the plague. She brought the plague. She didn't heal it with her touch. She spread it with her touch. And they began to turn against Psyche and call her not the blessed as they had when she was healing, but the accursed. This rose to a fevered pitch, and the priest of their religion, the religion of Ungat, they worship a stone, a very primitive religion of blood and sacrifice and prostitution. The priest of that religion of Ungat came to the king and said, Ungat has told us that your daughter Psyche is the reason for the plague and the reason for the drought, and the only way to bring the rains and end the plague is to sacrifice her up on the hill. At the one tree on the mountain of the gods. And on that one tree there hung a chain of iron. And on the end of that chain of iron there was a metal encasement that would fit around a person's body. And they said we must sacrifice her there. Strap her into this iron harness. Hang her from the tree until she dies. Or until the son of the god comes. The shadow brute as some called him. Some said he would come down and ravage her and then kill her. Others said he would come down and take her off into the mountain of the God to be her, his uh, wife. Others said she would just starve and be eaten by animals. No one knew for sure, but the day came and they took her to the sacrifice. She went willingly, in a sense laying down her own life. But her sister, Oriol, fought for her. Fought so hard that she got in a tumble and fell downstairs and was bruised, knocked unconscious and lay unconscious for three or four weeks. She came out of her unconsciousness to realize that her dearest sister, the only person she'd ever loved, with somewhat of a possessive love, it must be admitted, but a love nonetheless, had been sacrificed and had been dead three weeks. She decides she has to go up to the lone tree and recover the remains of her beloved sister, Psyche. And she takes a trusted warrior, Bardia is his name, the oldest and wisest general in the army. And they go up secretly to the, to the lone tree. They get there, they don't find Psyche, they find the tree, they find the harness, they don't find anything, no bones, no blood, no flesh. There's nothing, it's as though she just disappeared. They hiked further up over the hill and down into a saddle where a river came and Bardia was scared out of his wits, the bravest man in the kingdom, but not on the mountain of the gods. He was a very religious man and he was afraid he shouldn't be where they were. And they come down to the river and this is where we pick up our story. 
It's narrated primarily, in fact, solely by Oriol, the sister looking for Psyche. Picture it. Now we were at the bottom and so warm that I had half a mind to dip my hands and face into the swift amber water of the stream which still divided us from the main of the valley. I'd already lifted my hand to put aside my veil when I heard two voices cry out. One, Bardia's. I looked. A quivering shock of feeling that has no name but is nearest terror stabbed through me from head to foot because there, not six feet away, on the far side of the river, stood Psyche. What I babbled between tears and laughter in the first wildness of my joy, the water still between us, I don't know. I was recalled by Bardia's voice. Careful, lady. It may be her wraith. It may, ay, ay, it is the bride of the god. It is a goddess. He was deadly white and bending down to throw earth on his forehead. You, you couldn't blame him. She was so bright-faced, as we say in Greek. She was tanned by the sun and the wind and clothed in rags but laughing. Her eyes like two stars, her limbs smooth and rounded, and but for the rags, no sign of beggary or hardship about her. Welcome, 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 she was saying. Oh, Maya, I've longed for this. It was my only longing. I knew you would come. Come, or you all, come. You must cross the stream. I'll show you where it's the easiest. Now, I suppose that the long bedridden and indoors time of my sickness had softened me. Anyhow, the coldness of that water shocked all the breath out of me. And the current was so strong that, but for Psyche's hand, I think it would have knocked me down and rolled me under. I even thought momentarily amid a thousand other things, how strong she grows. She'll be stronger, a stronger woman than ever I was. She'll have that as well as her beauty. And the next was all confusion, trying to talk, to cry, to kiss, to get my breath back all together. But she led me a few paces beyond the river and made me sit in the warm heather and sat beside me, our four hands joined in my lap. She jumped up, went a little way off, and came back carrying something, uh, little cool dark berries of the mountain and a green leaf. Eat, she said. Is it not food fit for the gods? Nothing sweeter, said I. And indeed, I was both hungry and thirsty enough by now, for it was noon or later. But Psyche, I said, tell me how. Wait, she said. After the banquet, wine. Close beside us, a little silvery trickle came out from among the stones, mossed, cushioned soft. She held her two hands under it till they were filled and raised them to my lips. Have you ever tasted nobler wine, she said, or in a fairer cup? <laughs> Indeed, it is a good drink, said I, but the cup is better. It is the cup I love best in the world. Well, then it's yours, sister. Well, she said it with such a pretty air of courtesy, like a queen or hostess giving gifts, that tears came into my eyes again. It brought back so many of her plays in childhood. I said, we, we have so much to talk about and so much to arrange, but, but Psyche, there's no time for you. 
There's all the time there is. Don't you want to hear my story? Well, of course I do. I want to hear every bit of it when we're safe. And she interrupted. Where shall we ever be safe if not safe here? This is my home, Maya. This is my home. And you won't understand the wonder and glory of my adventure unless you listen to the bad part of the story. It wasn't very bad, you know. And she went on. When I first came and was tied to the tree, I was trying to cheer myself with all that old dream I had in childhood of my golden amber palace, you remember, on the mountain and the god. I, I was trying to believe it, but I couldn't believe in it at all. I couldn't understand how I ever had all that. All my old longings were clean gone. The only thing that did me good, she continued, was quite different. It was, it was hardly a thought and very hard to put into words. There was a lot of the fox's Greek philosophy in it, things he says about gods or the divine nature, but mixed up with things that the priest said, too, about blood and the earth and how sacrifice makes crops grow. I, I'm not explaining it well. It, it seemed to come from somewhere deep inside me, deeper than the part that pictures golden amber palaces, deeper than fears, deeper than, than tears. It was shapeless, but, but you could hold on to it or just let it hold on to you. And then the change came. What change, I said. Well, the weather, of course, she answered. I couldn't see it tied the way I was, but I, I could feel it. It was suddenly cool. Then I knew the sky must be filling with clouds behind my back. And then a sigh of wind. The west wind came at my back. Then more and more wind. You could hear and smell and feel the rain drawing near. So then I knew quite well that the gods really are. And that I was bringing the rain. And then the wind was roaring, but it's too soft a sound to call it a roar. All around me in the rain, the tree kept some of it off me, but I was holding out my hands all the time and licking the rain off of them. I was so thirsty. The wind got wilder and wilder. It seemed to be lifting me off the ground so that if, I hadn't been, if it hadn't been for the iron around my waist, I'd have been blown right away up in the air. And then, at last, for a moment... I saw him. Saw who? I said. The west wind. Saw it? Not it. Him. The god of the wind. West wind himself. Were you awake, Psyche? I said. Oh, it was no dream. One can't dream of things like that because one's never seen things like that. He, he was in human shape. But you couldn't mistake him for a man. Oh, man. Oh, sister. You'd understand if you'd seen. How can I make you understand? You, you've seen lepers. You know how healthy people look beside a leper? I said, you mean healthier and ruddier than ever? Yes, yes. Now we, beside the gods, are like lepers beside us. I said, do you mean the god was red? She laughed, clapped her hands. Oh, it's of no use, she said. I, I see I've not given you the idea at all. Never mind. You shall see gods yourself or you all. It must be so. I'll make it so somehow. Psyche, are you sure this happened? I said, you must have been dreaming. And if it was a dream, sister, she said, 
How do you think I came here? It's more likely that everything that happened to me before this was a dream. Why, Gloam and the king and our servants seem very much like dreams to me now. But, oh, you all, when I came to myself, ah, can you think what a moment that was, and saw the house, the house before me, I lying at the threshold. And it wasn't, you see, just the golden amber house I used to imagine. If it had been just that, I might indeed have thought I was dreaming, but... What I saw wasn't. It's not like any of the houses in this land, nor quite like those Greek houses the fox describes to us. Something new, never conceived of. But there, you can see for yourself. And I'll show you every bit of it in just a moment. Why need I try to show you in words? You see, it was a God's house at once. I don't mean a temple where a God is worshipped. A God's house where He lives. I would not have for any wealth in the world gone into it, but I had to, Oriol. For there came a voice, sweet, oh, sweeter than any music, yet my hair rose at it, too. And do you know, Oriol, what it said? It said, enter your house. Yes, it called it my house. Enter your house, Psyche, the bride of the God. I went, cold and small and shaking, up the steps and through the porch and into the courtyard. There was no one to be seen, but then the voices came all around me, bidding me welcome. What kind of voices, I asked. Like women's voices, at least as like women's voices as the wind god was like a man. And they said, enter, lady. Enter, mistress. Don't be afraid. And there was a table set out with fruit and wine, such fruits as never, but you see. They said, refresh yourself, lady, before the bath, and after it comes the feast. And then they dressed me again after the bath and the most beautiful things. And then came the banquet and then the music. And then they had me to bed and then the night came. And then, and then he, he, I said, he's the bridegroom, the God himself. Don't, don't look at me that way, sister. I, I'm your true psyche still. Nothing will change that. Psyche, I said, leaping up. I can't bear this any longer. You've told me so many wonders. If this is all true, I've been wrong all my life. If this is all true, I've been wrong all my life and everything has to be begun all over again. Psyche, is it true? You're not playing a game with me. Show me. Show me your palace. Well, of course I will, she said, rising. Let's go in. And don't be afraid of whatever you see or hear. Well, is it far, said I. She gave me a quick, astonished look. Far to where, she said. Well, to the palace, to the God's house, I said. Now, you've seen a lost child in a crowd run up to a woman who it takes for its mother. And how the woman turns round and shows the child, the face of a stranger, and then the look in the child's eyes, silent a moment before it begins to cry. Psyche's face was like that. Checked. Blank. Happiest assurance suddenly dashed all to pieces. Oriol, she said, beginning to tremble. What, what do you mean? 
I too became frightened, though I had no notion of the truth. Mean, said I, where's the palace? How far have we to go to reach it? And then she gave one loud cry. And then with white face staring hard into my eyes, she said, But this is it, Oriol. It is here. You're standing on the stairs of the great gate. If anyone could have seen us at that moment, I believe he would have thought we were two enemies met for, ma met for battle to the death. I know we stood like that, a few feet apart, every nerve taut, each with eyes fixed on the other in terrible watchfulness. Huge, silent moments went past. I suppose my first thought must have been, she's mad. Anyway, my whole heart leaped to shut the door against something monstrously amiss, not to be endured and to keep it shut. Perhaps I was fighting not to be mad myself, but what I said when I got my breath, and I know my voice came out in a whisper, was simply, we must go away at once. This is a terrible place. Was I now too believing in her invisible palace? Up on that mountain, in the very heart of the mountain where Bardia had been afraid, and even the priests don't go, anything was possible. No door could be kept shut. Yes, that was it. Not plain belief, but infinite misgiving. The whole world, and Psyche with it, slipping out of my hands. Whatever I meant, she misunderstood me horribly. So, she said, you do see it after all? See what, I asked. A fool's question, I knew what. Why this, this, said Psyche. The gates, the, the shining walls. For some strange reason, fury, my father's own fury, fell upon me when she said that. I found myself screaming, stop it, stop it at once, there's nothing here. Her face flushed. For once and for a moment only, she too was angry. Well, feel it, feel it if you can't see, she cried. Touch it, slap it, beat your head against it. Here, she tried to grab for my hands, I wrenched them free. Stop it, I said. Stop it, I tell you. There's no such thing. You're pretending. You're trying to make yourself believe it. But I was lying. How did I know whether she really saw invisible things or spoke in madness? Either way, something hateful and strange had begun. All at once, a look came into her face that I'd never seen there. Sharp, suspicious. But... You tasted the wine. Where do you think I got it from, she said. Wine? What wine? What are you talking about, I replied. Or you all the wine I gave you and the cup. I gave you the cup. Where is it? Where have you hidden it? Oh, have done with that child, I said. I'm in no mood for nonsense. There was no wine. But I, I gave it to you. You drank it. And the fine honey cakes, you said, you gave me water. Cupped in your own hands. But you praised the wine, she said, and the cup. You said, I praised your hands. You were playing a game. You know you were. And I fell in with it. She gaped, open-mouthed, yet beautiful even then. So that was all, she said. You, you mean you saw no cup? You tasted no wine? 
She pressed down a great storm of passion, and her mood changed. It was now sober sadness, mixed with pity. She struck her breast and clenched her fist as mourners do. Ay, she mourned. So this is what he meant. You, you can't see it. You can't feel it for you. It is not there at all. Oh, Maya, I'm very sorry. At that moment, I came almost to full belief. She was shaking and stirring me a dozen different ways. But I'd not shaken her at all. She was as certain of her palace as of the plainest thing. Oh, this valley was indeed a dreadful place, full of the divine, sacred, no place for mortals. There might be a hundred things. There might be a hundred things in it I could not see. Oh, I cried, it's not right, Psyche. It is not right. Come back with me. Where are you? Come back with me. She had me in her arms at once. Maya, sister, she said, I'm here, Maya. Don't, I can't bear it. She led me a few paces further and made me sit down on a mossy bank and sat beside me. With words and touch, she comforted me all she could. And as in the center of a storm or even of a battle, I've known sudden stillness for a moment. So now, for a little, I let her comfort me. Not that I took heed of what she said. It was her voice, her love in her voice that counted. But what was she saying? And perhaps, Maya, you too will learn how to see. I'll beg and implore him to make you able. He will understand. He, I thought, I'd forgotten about this him, or if not forgotten, left him out of the account. Who are you talking of, I asked. I've told you all my story, she said. My God, of course. My lover. My husband. The master of my house. I can't bear it, I said, leaping up. Those last words of hers, spoken softly and with trembling, set me on fire. I could feel my rage coming in back. And then, like a great light and a hope of deliverance, it came to me. I asked myself why I'd forgotten and how long I'd forgotten that first notion of her being mad. Madness, of course. The whole thing must be madness. Have done with it, Psyche, I said sharply. Where is this God? Where is this palace? Nowhere but in your own fancy. Where is he? Show him to me. What is he like? She looked a little aside and spoke lower than ever. But very clear, oh, or you all. Not even I have seen him yet. He comes to me only in the holy darkness. He says I mustn't not yet see his face or know his name. I'm forbidden to bring any light into his, our chamber. Then she looked up, and as our eyes met for a moment, I saw in hers unspeakable joy. There's no such thing, I screamed loud and stern. Never say these things again. Get up. You've imagined these things. It's the terror and the loneliness and, and that drug they gave you. Come with me. We'll cure you. Oh, or you all, she said. What? If it's all my fancy, how do you think I've lived these many days? Do I look as if I've been fed on berries and slept under the sky? Are my arms wasted or my cheeks fallen in? I would, I believe, have lied to her myself and said they were, but it was impossible. 
From the top of her head to her naked feet, she was bathed in life and beauty and well-being. It was as if they flowed over her or from her. It was no wonder Bardia had worshipped her as a goddess. The very rags served only to show more of her beauty. She even seemed, but that's impossible, I thought, taller than before. And she said to me, you see, Maya, it's all true. Make no mistake. That's why all will come right. And we'll make, he'll make you able to see. Was it madness or not? Which was true? Which would be worse? But mark what happened then. It began to rain. It was only a light rain, but it changed everything for me. Here, child, I said, come under my cloak. Your poor rags, quick, you'll get wet through. She gazed at me wonderingly. How should I get wet, Maya? She said, when we're sitting indoors and with a roof over us. And rags? Oh, but I forgot. You cannot see my robes either. It's no use, Maya. I see it. And you don't. And who's to judge between us? I didn't know what to do, but I broke out saying, Psyche, Psyche, there's still time. Come with me. Anywhere. I'll smuggle you out into the empire of Gloam. We'll go for beggar women all over the world. Anywhere, anything you like, but come with me. She shook her head. How could I, she said. I'm not my own. You forget, sister, that I'm a wife, yet always yours too. Oh, if you knew, you'd be happy, Oriol. Don't look so sad. All will be well. All will be better than you can dream of. Have you ever wondered what it was that so seized the minds and the imaginations and the wills of the early disciples? Have you ever wondered why they gave up everything to follow this carpenter named Jesus? Why they allowed themselves to be put to the sword rather than deny him? Why Peter asked, as tradition tells us, to be crucified upside down so that because he didn't deserve to be crucified like his Lord. Have you ever wondered what gripped those men and those women, Mary and Joanna and Susanna and the rest of his followers, that gripped them with such intensity that they would give up all? Could it be that in Jesus they saw a man who was living in sight of an invisible palace? Who could see it and feel it and live within it? Could it be that in Jesus they saw a man of flesh and blood who had had such intimate relations with God his Father that he called him Daddy? 
Could it be that in Jesus they saw a man who truly saw, perhaps for the first time in the history of the world? They said he spoke with authority, not like the rest of their teachers and their religious leaders. That his voice was even different. And he said, I only say what my father tells me to say. He sounded as if there was a father walking right along with him, invisible to the eye. He said, I only do what I see my father doing. Not even what I saw my father doing in the past tense. He said, the whole world will scatter you in a few days, he said on his last night with the twelve. But, and I'll be left alone, but I'm really not alone. My father, my dad, he's with me. He said, in fact, I'm going to go and prepare a mansion for you. He said, I have many more things to tell you, but uh, you couldn't bear to hear them. Do you think that in Jesus, perhaps, for the first time in the history of the world, there was one man fully alive, completely aware of what was real, of what was of worth, of the true, of the good, of the beautiful, and lived in complete harmony with that? And yet he looked like a carpenter. He looked very ordinary to the human eye. But to the eye of faith, there was something different. John wrote his gospel to try to convince us to put our trust and our faith and our allegiance and our loyalty in this one person, Jesus Christ, who lived within sight of the palace, who lived in the closest intimacy with the Father. John says at the end of his gospel, I wrote this for this reason. So that you might trust that Jesus is the Christ and might have life in his name. Full life. The story, till we have faces, begs a very large question. Who are you in the story? Who are you like in the story? And Lewis, C.S. Lewis, points two ends of the spectrum, or you all... Who wants to see but doesn't want to see. And Psyche who's seeing in complete trust and faith. And I find that I'm usually somewhere between those two extremes. Much to the end of Oriol's side of the spectrum. Where are you on the spectrum? How can your faith become less like Oriol's demanding proof, demanding sight? And more like psyches living in the reality, the mercy and the love and the forgiveness of God. How can your faith expand so that at least the outline of the palace could come into view? Because Jesus said he had a kingdom that was invisible that he wanted you to be a part of. The Gospel of John is about faith in Jesus Christ. The author of the Hebrew letter said, the Hebrew says, faith is being certain, is having full confidence of things we hope in. It's being absolutely certain of things we cannot see. If faith, true faith, is absolute certainty, 
How do we grow from where we are to more and more certainty in the teachings of Jesus? What would it be like if we really believed, in a sense saw, what we say we believe? What if we really believed? How then would we live? What if we really believed there was a father, a dad, so close to us, so in love with us, that he was closer than your nearest breath? How would you live your life differently? What if we believed that mercy would really triumph over judgment, that forgiveness would really win over revenge, that love would really conquer hate and fear? How then would we live? How do we make our faith grow and expand? The same author in the book of Hebrews says this. He says that we must, knowing all these things about Jesus, seeing all these people who have gone on before us, he says we must strip aside everything that hinders us and the sin which dogs our feet, and we must run the race set out for us with patient endurance. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the source and the goal of our faith. I believe this fixing our eyes on Jesus is the way to expand our faith. Somehow the disciples who started with Jesus, just by being with him, just by focusing on him, in a sense, as Lewis puts it in another place, it was as though they were standing on a rock where the ocean came in and they were wetted by the spray. You couldn't help it if you stood close to Jesus. Something of him would shed itself all over you. Or as Lewis says in another place, it's not like putting paint over a board. It's like letting stain go deep into the pores. Being focused on Jesus Christ means his life begins to soak into our lives and our lives into his. So I'd ask you to remember this story and ponder it over the Christmas holidays for the purpose of focusing on those things which are unseen. To focus on Jesus Christ and let your faith develop. An ancient writer in the church said this, If Christ be born a thousand times in Bethlehem, but not in your own heart. I fear that you will truly.